Father, as we look at the blue sky and the sunshine, we're truly grateful for the love of God that shines into our heart each and every day. At the same time, of course, Lord, we are reminded of the fact that we desperately do need rain and snow here in California, and so we pray that you might supply that and that you might meet the need. But at the same time, Lord, we are also grateful for um, your goodness to us in every aspect of our lives. And we look to you for a blessing during this hour. We ask that your Holy Spirit might be present in each of our hearts to uh, relate the truth that is found here accurately and in a way that will change our lives, that we are not just exercising uh, an attendance factor, but we are realizing what God is at, uh, at work doing in our lives individually in the church corporately. Father, we ask for your special blessing in the service which is also going on right now and many other classes in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're to the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis, and I'd like for uh, us to read the first four verses of that particular chapter. Genesis 35, verses 1 to 4. Then Jacob said, no, then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to all his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. Jacob had experienced uh, a near disaster, and the whole family had faced this near disaster at Shechem. Jacob is now ready to listen to God. Is it not ironic how often that is true? We have to sometimes run into the wall at full steam before God gets our attention, before we really understand that God has something to say to us. And God always has something to say to us because we are constantly needing direction. We are like the horse with the rider on its back. The rider is constantly pulling on the reins a little here, a little there, using his knees, whatever is the technique, to guide the horse, particularly if, if, if the horse is not on an obvious trail. And I'm not saying that we're horses, but we are in need of that constant adjustment, it seems, as we walk day by day. As we look down through this passage now, the first four verses here of uh, Genesis 35, and even beyond that, we're going to see that Jacob had apparently allowed his relationship with God to deteriorate prior to the event that took place at Shechem. It seems that after the crises which had occurred involving Laban, first of all, and then Esau a little later, 
that Jacob became complacent. They became more self-dependent. That Jacob became satisfied with focusing his attention on his possessions and upon his, his comfort. Now, it's, I think it's really important for us to be reminded of the fact that God does not you know, have something against comfort, nor does he have something against possessions. It's how they control our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions that is important. It's very easy for any of us to fall into this trap because it appeals to our natural human tendency. I don't know about you, but my natural human tendency sometimes is just to sit down and flop, you know, and, and put the mind in neutral and, and not care about anything, you know, sometimes. Or after a crisis is over to kind of just cruise and, and think everything's going to be okay, that the trouble is over, that it's past. So we, we face this, this, um, this trap ourselves, actually very frequently even as Jacob did. We again have to remember there was a spiritual warfare going on here. And, and Satan was very present to try to influence Jacob into complacency, into concern about material things, and non-concern about obedience to God. It's easy for us, I think, particularly after a major crisis is over, to take our relationship with God for granted and, and to become consumed with the things of this life. Now, most of the things of this life that aren't specifically stated in Scripture as being things that we ought not to be doing are, are, are not bad or evil in themselves. They're perfectly fine. But if our time and our attention and our strength are consumed by them, this is the problem. And it's easy for that to happen. It's easy to become so concerned about our job, for example, that we pour all our strength and our attention and our time and uh, into our job to the neglect of our relationship with God and our relationship with other important people in our lives. And to think we're doing right in so doing. Whatever it might be, it's very easy, I think, for us to get off the track that God has put us on. We have an illustration in the recent history of this church, I think, that, that fits this to some extent. About four years ago, as you well know, maybe three, four years ago, this church faced a major crisis. And suddenly there was a call for an all-church prayer meeting. Let's all get together on Tuesday night, and we're going to pray through this, this great problem. Nearly 100 people showed up for that first Tuesday evening prayer meeting. Why? Was it because nobody had anything else to do on Tuesday night? Was it because that was the, the, the most exciting thing they could think of to do on Tuesday night? Probably not. The reason was that they perceived this problem to be a great threat to the ongoing purposes of this church. And so they came to pray. They saw God as the only one who could bring the church through, and that is absolutely accurate. God is the only one who can do that. But as the weeks passed, the prayer meeting can steadily diminished in size, diminished and diminished. And after a few weeks, about 10 people came out regularly. Why? Was it because the crisis was over and there was no further need for intense prayer? No, I think it was because most thought the crisis was over 
and therefore the intense time was no longer needed. The problem was that uh, most apparently didn't realize that the crisis is never over. The crisis is always here. We are walking through a storm. That particular event that brought that prayer meeting was simply a single manifestation of the ferocious spiritual warfare that is raging about us all the time. Satan never blows the whistle and says, time out. He never says, oh, it's the weekend. I guess I better go take a holiday, you know. He is there intensely working every moment of every day. And his demonic forces don't need sleep. And they don't need a vacation. They're intensely at work all the time to bring about their dastardly deeds. Just over two weeks ago, we are all very aware of the fact that two young Christian brothers in this town were tragically killed in an automobile accident. Yesterday, Lois and I traveled down to the Bay Area to participate in a memorial service for a young man, 19 years of age, who was struck down in an air crash that same evening, December 31st, 1993. This Tuesday, he would have been 19 years of age. He's a young man that we've known for about seven years, and his mother, very, very close friend of ours, a woman who has suffered many tragedies. The mother of this boy had committed suicide in 1987, we held the memorial service for her. And now the grandson that she had been raising was killed in this plane crash in Oregon along with his grandfather. These are simply vivid examples, I think, of the warfare that is raging about us all the time without a timeout. It's not intermittent. It's continuous. We may not feel it at a moment. We may not see it at a particular moment, but it is there. Part of that spiritual warfare is to lull us into complacency in thinking that it's okay. Now, Satan is, in our, is not in our face all the time, you know, trying to, trying to convince us that, you know, terrible things are about to happen. Sometimes he just wants us to become complacent so that we're not too energetic in our pursuit of God. That really is what he is after. In 1 Peter, we're told that the devil goes around like a prowling lion, seeking whom he may devour. I think it's really important for us to recognize Satan is not a pussycat. He is a ferocious lion. Now, you've all heard the TV and radio preachers that I have, I've heard too, I'm sure, who, who make light of the devil and, and shake their fist in his face and tell him to get out of here and, you know, use all kinds of rather silly language relative to Satan. He's a very, very powerful being. And he is there to tear us up individually and to tear us up corporately. He will do all he can to tear down the church. Now, we have God's promise that the forces of hell will not prevail against the church. But look at the life of Job for a minute. When we read the book of Job, we see behind the scenes. And so we see right off the bat, Satan goes before God and God says, where have you been roaming to and fro over the face of the earth? And God says, well, have you noticed Job? Yeah, I've noticed Job. And so then you read about what happens to Job. Now, if you hadn't seen that opening scenario 
and all you read was what happened to Job, uh, you'd think, boy, God is really mean. You know, this good guy, and, and God lets all these terrible things happen to him. You know, God tells Satan, you can do anything you want, but you can't kill him. You, well, we could have thought it would have been more gracious for God to let him to kill him than let him go through all that. But God didn't. And we have to recognize Satan is constantly roaming to and fro over the surface of the earth. And even though he is forced by being a single being to only be at one place at one time, he has millions of minions who are everywhere all around the world. And they're set up in such a way they have good communication. And uh, the forces of hell are at work constantly. How do we avoid being chewed up by this roaring lion? Well, we avoid being chewed up, of course, by being obedient to the Word of God. I'd like for us to turn to a passage we've looked at before during the course of our lessons, but I think it's a really critical passage in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Now remember, Peter has been through a tremendous amount of experience walking with Jesus uh, being the first to preach after Pentecost and to see 3,000 come to the Lord, and, and certainly not as a result of his great sermon, but the work of the Spirit. And uh, church history tells us a lot of things about Peter that Scripture doesn't, and whether they are apocryphal or not, it doesn't matter. Certainly this man faced tremendous opposition. But his words are, Humble yourselves therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There is a powerful amount of truth in this particular passage of Scripture. I think it's really important for us to notice that virtually everything that Peter mentions in that passage having to do with overcoming the evil one revolves around the truth of prayer. And I think that's one of the reasons why prayer is so downplayed. The enemy wants us all to think of prayer as just a, you know, just a practice, a, a trite little thing, rather meaningless, because he knows it is our most powerful weapon. It is the means by which God accomplishes his purpose through us. Notice as you read there, it says, humble yourselves. How do we humble ourselves? We humble ourselves by bowing the knee, so to speak, not necessarily physically, but maybe so, before God in prayer. It says for us to cast our care, our anxiety upon him. How do we do that? We do it in prayer. We cast our anxieties, our cares upon him. It tells us in that passage to be of sober spirit, you know, to, to, to be wise in our understanding of who God is in our focus on 
prayer and to resist the enemy. And we do that in prayer. It's where it's at. It's where it happens. Now, if we're faithful to God's word and to prayer, individually and corporately, then Satan has no power over us. The roaring lion is made, in effect, toothless to that extent, to the extent that we are obedient, to the extent that we truly pray individually and we gather together to pray for one another. And in the end, he loses the battle. Now, we all are aware of the fact that in the end, he ultimately loses. In the book of Revelation, we're told he is cast into the lake of fire. But he's not there yet. And he can do a whole lot of damage between now and then. And it's our job to be God's instruments of blessing, of goodness in this world. And those, these instruments are greatly dulled if we're not walking in obedience and if we are not praying with and for each other. You'll notice in the 10th verse of that passage in 1 Peter, it says, after you have suffered for a little while, which means we are going to catch it. There are going to be problems. This lady that we have had as a friend for, for 13 years and who, is, who in that length of time has lost her sister, her daughter, her grandson, and her father has suffered for a little while. And, you know, to lose tragically the, this grandson that you've raised as a son who is your only connection to the daughter who died so tragically is almost, well, it certainly is more than humans can take in their own strength. And it's only by God's grace, and she testifies strongly to this, that she's able to go on. I mean, what difference does tomorrow make if everything you, 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 you uh, really love and, and want is gone? I don't know if you've ever faced that situation. I'm sure most of us have, where we think, oh, things are the way they are right now. I don't give a rip about tomorrow. You know, what difference does my job make? What difference does all this make if this crisis is, is developing in my life, my family, you know, whatever it might be? God tells us that we are going to suffer for a little while. But the latter part of the verse is what's so important for us to also remember, that the God of all grace who's called us is going to perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is his purpose. That is his goal. His purpose in our lives is, is, is not just to make us happy. His purpose in our lives is, uh, uh, you know, not to just help us to be a better whatever we are. His purpose in, his, in our lives is to perfect us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us for the sake of his kingdom. That is the purpose. And, and we're so easily distracted from that. We're, we're, we're so easily uh, thinking that if I can just make that next step in, in, at my job or in my vocation and, and move that step higher, I've really achieved something in this life. But it's all going to be gone. It's all going to go poof, even as Terry and I were talking just before class this morning. It, it you know... 
all of these things mean nothing unless it is God working in us to achieve His purpose. And, and God's purpose is not necessarily achieved simply because we make one more rung in the ladder at our job or in our vocation. Now, God may be strengthening us to do that. He may be working through us to do that. But if that's our goal only, it doesn't really mean much in the long run. Jacob's family suffered a serious attack because Jacob was not giving his family the godly leadership that he knew how to give and that he knew he ought to be giving. And that seems to be implied throughout this passage of Scripture. Jacob was God's man. Jacob was the one who had met God at Bethel. And God had revealed something in, of, of himself to Jacob. And God had promised him, gave him this whole series of promises. Literally from the mouth of God himself. And yet Jacob was not living that before his family at Shechem. In the midst of Jacob's distress, God spoke to him and commanded him to go to Bethel. And God didn't say, just go visit Bethel. God said, go live there. The Hebrew word here is to dwell, to remain. Don't just make it a passing thing. Go and live there. Stay there for a while. Get it together, Jacob. Get your family on the same track that you're supposed to be on. I think it's very clear from the 34th and 35th chapters of Genesis that he should have gone to Bethel in the first place. They had no business stopping at Shechem. Remember in the 34th chapter, there's no mention of Jacob talking to God at any point, seeking God's wisdom, wanting God's direction, no, no mention of it at all in that particular chapter. It was there at Bethel that he had experienced his first theophany, and he had received God's personal promise to be with him wherever he went to meet his needs and to bring him back to this land, the land of Canaan. And if you go back to that 28th chapter of Genesis and you look at those verses, you discover that as a result of the vision and the promises of God, Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place. And then a little bit later he says, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. Now most of us are well aware of the fact that a particular physical latitude and longitude on the face of this planet is not more holy than another particular physical place. But, but a place becomes holy because God is present. When Moses went before the burning bush, God told Moses, take off your sandals because the ground upon which you are standing is holy ground. Why was it holy ground? I mean, it was just plain old, probably sand or rock. It was probably just a plain old bush. I mean, everything was plain old. <laughs> but when God came, it became set apart, holy, sanctified, because he was present. And there on the hilltop at Bethel, Jacob had seen God 
in the vision of the angels going up and down the stairway. And God had spoken audibly to him, at least in his dream. And the place thus was sanctified. And that hilltop became holy, at least for Jacob. It was a holy place. And he should have, in my opinion, reading this anyway, uh, on his way back, he should have rushed back to Bethel to say, God, I'm here. And look at the family you've gave me. Of course, he's not telling God anything he didn't know. But he would be acknowledging before God at that special place in his life all that God had done. He had set up a pillar for a memorial. He had poured the oil over it to, uh, to anoint that particular pillow, that pillar that had been his pillow. And he called the place Bethel, which means house of God. And he had made a vow to God there. Now, the implication of his vow was that if God did all that God had promised that he would do, then Jacob would make this site a memorial to God and would sacrifice to him there. But where did he build the altar? He built it at Shechem. He made the sacrifice at Shechem. Now, again, you can't say that a few miles away, 20 miles away, that this particular square of earth was less holy than another square of earth uh, 20 miles uh, further south. But in Jacob's life, in Jacob's mind it was, because God had met him there, God had not met him at, Je at Shechem. Now that's not to say God wouldn't have, but we find no implication that he sought God at Shechem. And the influence of the evil uh, powers there at Shechem had uh, seemingly influenced him in the wrong direction. Think about it for a moment. Had he not gone to Shechem, but gone straight to Bethel and built an altar there and camped there. Now, we don't know how long he stayed at Shechem. It seems they was at Shechem for years. But he, had he not made the stop at Shechem, had he gone to Bethel, the tragedy of chapter 34 of Genesis, Genesis would not have happened. Dinah would not have been raped by the prince of Shechem. Simeon and Levi would not have been responsible for genocide. They would have not have killed the male population of the city of Shechem. None of those events would have occurred, have occurred, had they not stopped at Shechem. In the first verse of this 35th chapter of Genesis, we see God speaking. Notice how the chapter begins. We've had the 34th chapter. We've read this, this terrible account. And verse thir chapter 35 says, then God. There's a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, power in that little phrase, then God. See, God knows what's going on. And he knows what's going on in your life and in my life. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what our attitudes are. Uh, he knows when we fail. He knows when we're intending to fail. That is, fail him. Then God. See, he doesn't give up. He didn't give up on Jacob. He didn't say to Jacob, well, you know, you decided to go it on your own down there, and look what you did. You botched the whole thing up, so you can just go on your own from now on out. No, because God had promised him, I will be with you. And the implication was forever. And so God was with him. But God isn't going to go with us forever, uh, letting us botch everything up without intervening. 
And sometimes he intervenes with that head-on collision with the wall. The favorite two-by-four, you know, method. And often that's because we have allowed no other method to work. So in this 31st, uh, 35th chapter, the first verse, God speaks directly to Jacob. God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Do you remember that, Jacob? How could he forget? But he certainly seemed to have forgotten it for a period of several years there while he was dwelling at Shechem. Why was he at Shechem? What was at Shechem? Well, if you've ever been to Shechem, there's nothing at Shechem. There's no particular reason why anybody would want to live there. There are some other places I would have chosen if I was just going to dwell any old place. Some beautiful little fountains and waterfalls and springs. Why out there? At Shechem. So God commanded him to build an altar. The altar that he should have built before rather than at Shechem. Now notice Jacob's response. I think this is an indictment of Jacob, of his previous action. So Jacob said in verse 2, to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. When he clearly heard the word of the Lord, he was convicted to do some spiritual house cleaning. Why hadn't he done this before? Why when he was at Shechem and he built the altar there at Shechem, why did he then not do what he said here? Why did he not at that time order all the teraphim out of the household? I'm going to build an altar. Get rid of all the teraphim. There seems to be no thought about that. I'm just going to build an altar and God will be happy and you keep your teraphim and certainly it will all work out in the end. Now was that a statement of, of Jacob's compromise? Well, not necessarily. It could have been a statement of the fact that he hoped that by his example they would eventually throw out their teraphim recognizing that Yahweh was the only true God. That's possible. But it is possible that he was kind of thinking, well, you know, God won't mind a little. A few teraphim, what do they matter? But of course, one of the things we learn as we study through the scripture is that God is not going to accept any other worship from our, uh, any other uh, direction of worship of our hearts. God, you, you cannot serve God and mammon. We can serve God alone or we don't serve God at all. There's no middle ground. We can't, quote, hedge our bets, as some would say, and try to worship everybody just in case, you know. There are some syncretistic people in the world today who want to bow to God and they want to bow to Allah and they want to have their little Hindu deities. They want to make sure that they're in somehow, some way, whichever is the right way or whichever are the right ways, they want to make sure they're in. So they take it all, which means they don't have anything at all. I think, though, it's very clear to us from the 34th chapter of Genesis that Jacob hadn't been a particularly good example to his family, at least in his most recent years before he finally moved to Bethel. And I'm sure as they looked at his life, they had no particular reason why they should set aside their teraphim and accept Yahweh 
because Jacob seemed to have been living a compromising life at that time. So now he finally does what he should have done a long time before and ordered the elimination of the teraphim. Get rid of these household deities, these little clay idols. I think the lesson should be clear to us all, particularly to husbands and fathers who are the spiritual head, heads of the home. God not only wants us to be a good example to our families by our obedience and our faithfulness to the Lord, but as spiritual heads of the home, of the homes, we're to teach truth, to eliminate error and worldliness from our family as much as it is possible for us to do. Certainly in a kind and loving way. We're not to become dictators. But we are to do all that we can to get error out of the home and, and other, quote, gods out of the home. As I was thinking about this this morning, a passage came to my mind that we all know well that's not on your outline. I like to just read that because it seems to uh, fit here. Deuteronomy chapter 6 where God really makes this quite clear a little bit later on. What is the position of the spiritual head of the home? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, and the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and of course, the implication is to your daughters too, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall bind them as it were as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." What that tells us is, of course, at least for one thing, that you don't just teach your kids, as fathers and, of course, as mothers too, about the Lord in Sunday school. They come home from Sunday school and you say, what did you learn? Well, we learned about Joseph. What did you learn about Joseph? Well, learned that Joseph was a faithful man. And, and, oh, I'm glad you learned that. And then you don't speak another word about the things of God until the following Sunday morning when you question your child about Sunday school. It's to be on our lips and in our minds and, and in our actions every day of the year whenever we are in contact with our children. We have a hard time achieving that, I realize. Being human, we, we, we fail. But it should be our goal and our desire. And as, the, as, as our children or our grandchildren see that in us, it will make a big difference in their lives. Because it becomes a reality, not just something you hear about at church. Most of us are, are familiar with, with people who go to church, but it makes no difference in their lives. It's kind of a habit they've gotten into from the time, some point in their lives. And they just kind of feel good for an hour. And, and they go home and they think they've done their duty and they've kind of tipped their hat to God and, and God should be happy with them, be thankful that they gave him a whole hour out of their week. But God wants all of the hours out of all of our days, all of the weeks out of all of our years. And, and our kids are not dumb. <laughs> they can see whether that's in our lives or not. 
They know what our goals are. They know what our purposes are. They know how we're acting. You can't pull the wool over their eyes. Is it on our foreheads? Is it on our hands? Is it on our doorposts? Is it on our gates? I don't mean literally, don't carve it there, even though that's some of the modern Jews, that's what they think it's all about, you know, tie this little, this little uh, uh, leather thing with the word of God in it around their heads and on their hands, and this is what makes them holy. I mean, uh, this is absurd. What's being said here is, as it were, right there before you all the time. There is so much worldliness and error in the church today that much of it has certainly come through the fact that fathers have failed and husbands have failed in their role of leadership in the home. Belatedly, Jacob asserted his leadership and commanded that the gods be removed. And we could say, better late than never, this is true. Should have been long before now, though. Would have made a big difference in Dinah's life. Just think about Dinah. It may be over, but it was not over for Dinah. Dinah would bear the scar of what happened to her until the day she died. And Simeon and Levi would carry on their shoulders the responsibility for what they did to the day they died. And as I read last week to you, Jacob noted that in his final statement about his sons, these are bloody sons. And he spoke those words many years later. And neither Simeon nor Levi had a real place in Israel in terms of owning a hunk of the land in the same sense that the other tribes did. In addition, we read in this passage that uh, the family, the sons, the daughters, the wives, and Jacob were to cleanse or purify themselves. What is talking about here, of course, is ritual purification. It carries the idea of consecration. Uh, it carries the idea of a single purpose. I put down on your outline Exodus chapter 19. I'd like to turn to that for a moment. As you know, the 19th chapter of Exodus just precedes the 20th. That's profound, I'm sure. But the point is the 20th chapter reveals the Ten Commandments that God gave on Mount Sinai. Chapter 19, verse 10 the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, and he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain and to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. I want to say two things about this passage. One is that Moses set the bound around the mountain. Did it matter whether the bound was here or there? Did God draw a line in the ground and said, here, Moses, put the little barrier here? Did it matter whether it was a foot or two that way or this way? I don't think so. Wherever Moses put that boundary, that became the boundary that God used. Because the point was not how many square inches of dirt you walked on. The point was the heart attitude 
of sanctity towards the majesty of God, doing what he has commanded us to do. It was a heart attitude that God was dealing with here. And that heart attitude has everything to do with what's going on in Jacob's situation here with his family. Something else, too, I think it's important for us because it's uh, easy for us to look at the last uh, four or five, six letter, words of that uh, passage I just read and, and misinterpret. The last phrase which says, do not go near a woman, does not mean that women were somehow spiritual pariahs. And anyone who happened to bump into a woman was unclean. I think, and I hope I'm not insult, insert, uh, insulting anybody's intelligence, but these passages sometimes do get misinterpreted. It's a direct reference to sexual intercourse. And it's not saying that sexual intercourse is bad or dirty or unclean. It's simply saying that this great desire, right as it is, must even be set aside for a moment, temporarily, to do the greater thing, which is to stand in the presence of the majesty of God. And a direct parallel with this is fasting. We don't fast and pray because there's something evil about eating. But it's because we're setting aside something for a greater good, for a greater purpose. So obviously, we're, we're talking about a situation where the men as well as the women needed to, to consecrate themselves and to set aside anything that would take their focus off of what God was intending to do on that third day as he came down for them all to see, at least in the cloud, upon the mountain. Jacob's family, thus, was to do whatever bodily washing was considered necessary. And again, we're not talking about they had to get out there with the ivory, you know, and wash every little square inch from one end to the other and make sure they got every little scrap. The point is the obedience to what God has commanded here. And they were to put on clean garments. I think the significance was, first of all, to wash the body was a sign of the purification of the heart from idolatry. The washing, you know, it's not we have to take a bath every time we pray because God can't look at us if we've got some oil on our bodies. I mean, that's immaterial to God. Scripture tells us that they who worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. But it was a symbol. The cleansing of the body was symbolic of repentance. It was symbolic of humility. Again, as I was thinking about that this morning, Another passage came to, mind, to my mind that is not on your outline, but I think which is fitting here, and that is James 4. I'd like to read a couple of verses there quickly. James 4, verse 8, 9, and 10, where James is speaking and he says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter, that is your worldly pleasures, be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom, or more specifically, into repentance. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Cleanse our hands, cleanse our hearts. 
it was symbolic of repentance and symbolic of humility. And then secondly, they were to put on clean garments as a sign of sanctification. That is separation to God. You set aside the everyday clothes of the world and put on fresh garments to stand in God's presence. Festal clothing to recognize the holiness and the purity of God. To put on their best, to stand in the presence of God, was a recognition of the majesty of God. Who but a fool will walk into the presence of a mighty earthly prince in their junky clothes, their cut-off Levi's and their tank top? we would go into the presence of a mighty prince with the best we could possibly afford. Because we don't want to walk into the court of this mighty one looking like a beggar, looking like a tramp, looking like one who didn't care. I remember the story years ago was told to me of a union which ha was having a meeting and, and men were uh, running to be president of the union. And uh, one of the candidates got up to speak to the union men dressed just as he went to work, you know, in his Levi's, in his open collar shirt and everything else. The others came in their suits and ties. And the union men who had the vote voted for the man with the suit and the tie because they said the other man didn't care enough to dress up to try to show himself to be worthy. Scripture tells us, of course, that God does not look on the outward appearance of a man, but upon the heart. But I think it is true that sometimes careless dress reflects a careless heart, careless attitude. When you read in the 39th chapter of Exodus about what it took for the high priest and the other priests to be prepared before they stood in the presence of God, it's awesome as you read that passage at the gold and the, and the jewelry and, and the clean white linen and the, the blue and the other things that were all put together for this man to be prepared to go into the presence of God. Now, could God not accept this person with all these good clothes on? Absolutely not. That's not the point. The point is that the people would see that when you're going into the majesty of God, you go in with your best. Not that the best is going to make you better in God's eyes, but because in, in, in your heart you understand the majesty of this one. And we have a kind of a trite attitude in some instances today. God's our buddy. We kind of like, it's sort of like walking along the road to Emmaus with our arm hung around Christ saying, well, how was it, you know? Rather than recognizing that here's the Lord of the universe, the creator who made us from dust, the one to whom, whom we owe all of our existence. Well, he ordered the teraphim eliminated, and then he announced we're going back to Bethel, as he should have done 10 years before. I think the family was so severely shaken by the events at Shechem that they breathed a great sigh of relief. Jacob is now going to take leadership. And he's going to actively pursue the will of God. Whatever extent they believed in Yahweh, I think they were all relieved to see this happen. And everybody who had the teraphim 
brought them to Jacob. Even Rachel, his beloved wife, who had sat on them before, remember, to protect them from her father, brought them to Jacob, along with the earrings, which were like amulets. They were like good luck charms. They had a, they had a religious significance. And so they were taken out too. Not that earrings themselves, again, it has nothing to do with the concept of an earring. It's these specific earrings which had a spiritual connotation to them that were all given along with the teraphim to Jacob. And he removed thus all the emblems of false worship. And I think the scenario is that he went out at night, maybe after all were asleep, with this bundle of teraphim and, and earrings, and he went out under the cover of darkness so that no one would see where he buried these emblems in the ground under the oak, the terebinth, literally there, at Shechem. Because had he not gone under the cover of darkness, certainly somebody would have gone out there and dug them up because they couldn't stand the thought of not having their little good luck charms with them, you know. But he wanted to make a complete break with false worship and get back to where he was supposed to have been before he got to Bethel. But certainly now, as he went back to Bethel, let's make a good, clean start. And let's do it right. And sometimes that's what we need to do. We need to acknowledge that we have failed, that we've been a, a field here, and we simply need to say, God, I have totally blown it. I am back here now, and I'm going to start clean. I don't mean with a New Year's resolution, but I mean with a renewed commitment to pray, to study, to obey, to do the things so simple as they are that make us truly God's instruments that will change lives and make our environment a better environment for all. Well, next week we're going to begin with verse 5 and look at the miracle of God right off the... I mean, the first thing God does is respond with a miracle. And you read that verse and you know there is a miracle there. Because only God can put terror of this motley little family over here in the hearts of thousands of people. 